Good morning. So last week, I began this series by describing my unfamiliarity with the culture, geography, and language that's involved in the book, The Orient Express, Murder on the Orient Express. Do you remember that? Yeah, and I talked about how I felt like I'd have to read through the book twice just to understand it once, and so I gave up. And one of the purposes of this series is to help you not do that with the Bible, that you would not go, well, I don't understand it the first time, I think I'll just give up. And so we want to talk about how to read the Bible, really how to understand the Bible is the point um, behind this series. And so the outline for how we're doing this over the next like six weeks or so looks like this. Um, last week we did translations, today we move on to the topic of interpretation. Okay, so translation, last week we talked about what do you do, you got these... Um, ancient Hebrew documents, ancient Greek documents, and then they translate them into English. And so we talked about that process and how we end up with the English Bibles that we have. So then today we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which is, okay, they translated it. Now I've got an English Bible. Okay, now, how do I understand the words that are in the English Bible? So that's where we're picking up with. How do we interpret it, interpretation? Because there are times, and this has probably happened with you, it certainly has to me, um, where as you're reading the Bible and this could even be true of other documents other than the Bible, that you'll read something, and have you ever done this, where you thought to yourself, I know what all of those individual words mean, but when you put them all together, I don't know what that sentence means, right? Or I don't know what that paragraph means. Have you ever had that happen, where you go, I'm trying to interpret this, and it's not like I'm dumb, like I know what the word God means, and I know what man means, and I know what jealous means, and I know what yearn means, but when you put it all together, I don't know exactly what that verse is saying, and so today I wanted to give you some basic strategies for interpretation. And in fact, what I realize is, I don't even know if I'm going to be giving you much today as much as I'm going to be reminding you of some things you already know today. Because the truth is, interpretation is actually something you already do all the time. Did you know that? Like, this sermon is not really going to be, here we are, and we don't know how to interpret, and then Mario's the professional, he's going to get up, and he's going to teach us how to interpret. No, I'm going to actually point out to you that you already interpret. You actually do it all the time. So let me just start off with a sentence. I'm going to ask you to interpret it. In fact, even if I didn't ask you to, you would. You do it anyway. Every time I speak a sentence, you interpret it. And so I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. I wrote this, and we're just going to see if you can understand it. You ready? After the hurricane, it was a clear August day. When I looked out the clear window, and I can clearly remember watching that group of men clear the debris off the highway. All right? First of all, did you understand it? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You can almost picture someone looking out a window and seeing a crew of people take branches and stuff off the highway, right? You understood what I was saying, even though I used the word clear or a form of it four different times in that one sentence, and... <laughs> And every single time I used the word clear, I used it in a different way. Like I wasn't even consistent. Every single time I used the word clear in that sentence, I used a different definition for it, right? So when I said after the hurricane, it was a clear August day, you intuitively understood that I meant it was a cloudless August day. And when I said that I looked out the clear window, right, you knew I meant the see-through window in that case, right? But then when I said I can clearly remember watching that group of men, you understood I meant that I can easily remember watching that group of men. And when I said the group of men were clearing the debris off the highway, you knew I meant that they were removing the debris from the highway. Isn't it interesting that I used the word clear four times in one sentence to mean four different things, cloudless, see-through, easily, and removed. These are all words that do not mean the same thing. They're, they're four very different words. 
and I used the same one word to mean all of those, and you figured it out. You paid attention to all of the other words in the sentence, and you used all of the other words to help you figure out what I meant, even though I meant something different every single time I used the word. You figured it out instinctively and immediately. That is how much of a genius you already are. Okay? Congratulations. You know how to interpret. Okay? You do it. You do it instinctively, immediately. You were able to figure it out. Oh, these words, got it, got it, got it, got it. All right? So what I want to do today is I want to help you use skills that you already possess and apply them to the Bible. Because one of the problems, I think, with understanding the Bible or with misunderstanding the Bible is that we do not treat this book like we do other books. Let me say that again. I think one of the problems we have with understanding the Bible is our refusal to treat this book like we do other books. Now, you might hear, hear that and go, well, that sounds weird coming from a preacher. Mario, isn't this book special? Aren't we supposed to treat it different than other books? And my answer to that is yes and no. I think there's a sense in which we are supposed to treat it differently than other books, and there's a sense in which we are not. Let me talk about the sense in which we do treat it differently than other books. We are to treat the Bible differently than other books that we find when it comes to its authority. The Bible has a different level of authority because it's revelation from God. The Bible is more authoritative than just some other book at the library that you would check out. We are to treat the Bible differently when it comes to its authority. I was talking to a guy last week, and he told me a story about, about a guy that he was talking to, and he said that that guy said, like, he said, the Bible really needs to be updated, okay? That the Bible is, like, old, and it's from a long time ago, and it doesn't really fit with the way we do things nowadays, and some of the stuff it says that you're supposed to do doesn't fit with the way we do things now, and so someone needs to come along and actually, like, update it, not, like, make it easier to understand, but literally, like, change it to match the way we behave nowadays. Now, do you understand what that is assuming? The assumption there is that the way we do it nowadays would be more authoritative than what it says, right? And so we have to make it match what we, what we now know is really true or really the right way to do things. One of the things I said back to the person was, I said, if we were going to update, God, if we were going to update the Bible, who would do the updating? Like, who has the authority to update the covenant that God has made with humanity? And the implied answer is what? God alone. God alone could update what he has said. It's not up to us to do that. If God comes along and updates it, that's fine with me. Until he does, this is the authoritative revelation he's given us. So yes, there is a sense in which we must treat this book differently than other books. We treat it differently than other books when it comes to authority. However, there is a sense in which we are to treat this book like other books, and I believe that that's when we're talking about interpretation. The way that you should interpret the English words that you find in here is the same way you interpret English words in any other document that you read. And people's refusal to do that is the problem. We, we normally use things like context and genre and author intent in order to help us figure out what things mean. And then for some reason we could come to the Bible and think that we don't need to do any of that. There are times when people read the Bible and instead of trying to treat it like the way they would any other book, they will do something really weird and you've seen this and probably some of you in this room have done this. Okay, God, I want you to show me what you have for me today.
Let us follow other gods which we have not known. Do not listen to that prophet's words or to the dreamer. God, help me to follow other gods but not listen to my dreams. Amen. Right? Like, it doesn't even make sense. Like, you don't, what, can, what you even do with that? Just randomly opening to a page and pointing to something and go, that's what God has for me today? There are people who treat the Bible overly mystically. Is that right? Yes, that's true. All right? I, there was a woman that called me, or she actually sent me like a message on Facebook. Um, this was years ago. I think I was a youth pastor at the time. But she sends me this, this message, and it, she said something like this. She said, um, I haven't been going to church lately. I haven't read my Bible in a while. But like, I decided to get back into it today. Like, to, to, I decided I was going to start reading my Bible again. And so I opened my Bible, and I turned to the passage where Jesus was talking to the centurion. And then this is what she asked me. She said, I opened my Bible, I read the story of Jesus and the centurion, and then she asked me, and I don't remember how she worded it, but I think it was something like this. Why did I turn to that passage? And I tried not to get a bit snarky with her, because that almost never helps. And it's even worse on the internet. So I, I, was, I tried to be gentle, and I tried, I first I explained what the story about Jesus and the centurion is about. But in answering her question, why did I turn to that passage, I gave her the answer that I believe is true. I said, the reason that you opened to that passage, I think, is because it's more toward the middle. <laughs> and that's how books work. Like, I didn't say that's how books work. That would be snarky. <laughs> Heidi probably helped me edit that out before I press send. Um, <laughs> that the way that, that books work is if you, if you open them, more likely you're going to open to the middle than you would to the edges. So if you are someone who that's your relationship with the Bible, if you keep going, God, what do you have for me? And you keep opening it up like that, and you keep reading whatever randomly shows up, you're going to read a lot of Proverbs, you're going to read a lot of Psalms. You're probably going to read quite a bit from the uh, prophets in the Old Testament, especially the ones that have bigger books because they have a more high chance of hitting them, like Isaiah and Jeremiah. You might read all the way over as far as like First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and you might read all the way over to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you just keep opening to the middle, that's what you're going to get. You will notice that if the way that you relate to God's Word is by saying, God, reveal yourself to me, and then you just open it up somewhere, you, you will notice that God will almost never reveal anything to you from Genesis or Revelation, right? Because they're just too far to the edges for the Bible to ever open up to that. And it's so weird that God wrote those two books, but it had no intention of you actually ever getting to them because the Bible doesn't open up to them. <laughs> now, here's the thing. If you did that, if you just opened up a book and read it randomly with any other book, you would, you would know why that's a problem. Like if you did that with a John Grisham novel, just imagine you get a John Grisham novel and there it is on the coffee table, and you pick it up, you go, I'm going to read a little bit every day, and let's just say you decide on Monday, okay? On Monday, I'm going to open it up to some random chapter in the middle, I'm going to read a sentence. Mm, good job, John. And then I'm going to go to work. And then the next day when I wake up on Tuesday, I'm going to grab the book again, and I'm going to open up to another random chapter, and I'm going to read a paragraph. And then I'm going to go to work. And then on Wednesday, I do it again. And on Thursday, I do it again. And on Friday, I do it again. And then when someone comes up to you Saturday and sees the John Grisham book on the coffee table and says, ooh, what is that book about? You're going to say, what? You're going to say, I don't know. But this is the important part. You're going you're to say, I don't know. And you're going to know why you don't know. You're going to say, I don't know what this book is about because I've just read a few random sentences and random paragraphs from chapters in the middle out of order. I don't know what the book's about. And yet there are Christians who are doing that with the Bible for weeks and months on end 
and people are saying, what's it about? And you're going, I don't know, but then you're adding this weird thing. You're going, and I don't know why I don't know. I keep opening up, and I read a paragraph, and I close it again, and I, do, I don't know why I haven't figured out what this book's about. But if you did that with any other book, you'd know why you don't know. And so that's one of the things that I think we absolutely have to do. We have to realize this book is written in English, and I need to do the normal things I do with English when I'm trying to understand what it says. And so for that reason, I want to give you three common interpretation tools to use when you're trying to understand your Bible. This is actually, these three tools can be used to understand any document at all, um, but I'm going to be applying them to the Bible. Okay, context author intent, and genre. I'm sure there are more things. I'm sure this list could be longer. All different ways that you can use, like different strategies and different things you can take into account in order to understand what something says. But I think these are three very big ones. Context, author intent, and genre. So let's go ahead and go with context first. Interpreting something by its context is something you, again, you already do it all the time. The context of a word is the sentence that it's in. The context of a sentence is the paragraph that it's in. The context of a paragraph is the chapter that it is in. The context of a chapter is the book that it is in. And you use the words that are around things in order to figure out the meaning of things. So I'm gonna, I heard this somewhere. This is a, like an illustration I think I read online. I'm going to show you a sentence here, and we're going to talk about what it means. Okay? This is not a Bible sentence. This is just a regular old sentence. Could you put it up for me? Um, this, so this, this group of words. I'm going to pass on this resume. Okay? Everybody read it? I'm going to pass on this resume. What does this group of words mean? Okay. The answer, that's interesting. That is interesting that you came up with that. You'll see in a second. You're right and wrong. Okay, what does this mean? The answer to what does this mean is actually we don't know what it means because we, can't, we don't know the context. So let's go ahead and take these words and let's put them in a sentence. All right? Or with other words around it. Since this candidate is so great, I'm going to pass on this resume to HR. What does that mean? These words in this context mean, I approve. I like it. I accept this. It pleases me. Let's hire this person, right? But imagine these exact same words in the exact same order in this sentence, which is how you took it, by the way. Since we have dozens of better candidates, I'm going to pass on this resume. Isn't that interesting? The same exact words that mean I accept it, it is good, it pleases me, I approve. The same exact words in this context means I do not accept it, I reject it, I do not approve. The same words can mean something and can mean the opposite depending on the context. That's a powerful thought, isn't it? And yet you know that. You, that's part of life. You do that kind of thing all the time when you listen to people talk and when you read things. So let's go ahead and think that through when we think about the Bible. When we look at the Bible, we've got to not just go, well, here's what it means. No, what does it mean in relationship to all of the other things that are around it? So here's an illustration now from the Bible. Let's imagine that my children come up to me and they say, Dad, where did God come from? Which is a good question, isn't it? In fact, they did ask me a question very similar to that uh, earlier this summer. They were trying to understand, like, what came before God? Like, God created the whole world, so the world came from God, but then who created God? Like, how, how, did, how did all this start? Where did, where did God come from? So let's just imagine that my kids say, Dad, where did God come from? And imagine I think, oh, I don't want to mess this one up. This is a, big, this is a biggie. So I'm not even going to give them my own. Like, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm just going to quote the Bible verbatim, okay? 
So they said, where did God come from? So imagine I say, kids, I'll give you a Bible verse on this. Habakkuk 3.3. God comes from Teman. <laughs> That's a real Bible verse. Okay? God comes from Teman. So I want you to imagine, my kids say, Dad, where does God come from? And I go, I don't want to mess this up. I'll just quote the Bible. God comes from Teman. Now, are, they're, they're gonna, they're, there's no chance they're going to go, well, thank you. That cleared it up. <laughs> now we know. <laughs> what does that mean? We don't know what it means until we know what the words around it mean. Let's go ahead and look at the whole thing. Habakkuk, chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Where's my little bookmark here for Habakkuk? I'll have to find it the old-fashioned way. All right. So, here it is. God comes... Were some of you going, turn around? Is that what you're thinking? I want to, if I want to have it in my Bible, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, so God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Okay, so that's a little more context. Still doesn't make it clear, because I could say, okay, God comes from Teman. In fact, he comes from Mount Paran. Oh, okay. But what is, like, how did that mountain get created if he came from the mountain, right? What, what, what does this even mean, he comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran? Well, let's keep reading. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. Can you picture it? This is where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him and pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kushan in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers or is your rage against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows and at the brightness of your shining spear. You, you got to get this, you march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed, and you crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. What is this passage about? Habakkuk is having a vision. This is a prophecy, and the vision that he has is of God coming to pour judgment out on the evildoers and to rescue his people. And in the vision that he has of God coming to rescue, God is marching across the land. Can you tell that? He's marching, and he's trampling down the bad guys, and he's got a spear in his hand, and he's got bows and arrows, right? And he's there, and he's there to crush the bad guys and to rescue his people. And in the vision, as he's marching across the land, he's coming from... Teman. In other words, when Habakkuk is there picturing God coming to rescue his people, Habakkuk looks to the south over where Mount Paran is, and he goes, here comes God to rescue his people. That's what God comes from Teman means. He's coming from that direction, the south, as he marches across the land to rescue his people. And so that's why when someone says, where does God come from? You can't just say God comes from Teman, right? But, but that's quoting the Bible. It is. And just quoting the Bible is not good enough understanding the Bible is what we have to do. 
So um, let me give you some tips that I wrote under context, all right? For when you're reading your Bible, I would say this. Tip number one, don't read the Bible one verse at a time, okay? Don't read the Bible one verse at a time. More, are you saying it's a sin to open my Bible and read one verse? No. If you want to read, open your Bible and read a verse, you can do that anytime you want. What I mean is, under your, as far as your normal routine of trying to understand this book, the best way for you to understand this book over the long haul is going to be to not just read it one verse at a time. It's the same reason that any other book you read, you don't read one sentence at a time. There's no other book that you read, that you read one sentence and you set it to the side and you wait a few days and you read the next sentence. Okay? That's just not how you normally understand a book. That applies to the Bible. Typically, don't read the Bible one verse at a time. Here's tip number two. Start at the beginning of a book. <laughs> start at the beginning of a book. And in, even when I say start at the beginning of a book when you're reading it, I mean, I don't even mean you have to start at the beginning of the book, okay? You don't, you don't even have to start on page one because this is not actually a book. I mean, there is a sense in which this is a book because it's a bunch of pages and it's all bound together with a cover. But really what the Bible is, it's not one, one book from cover to cover, okay? Really what this is, is it's a, it's a collection of 66 ancient documents, okay? 66 ancient documents that we nowadays, and I don't know why, but we call them books. We call them the books of the Bible. I'm not sure why, because they're not really books. Most of them, I mean, the biggest ones are like 50 pages long. A lot, some of them are one page long, okay? So it's 66 documents that for some reason we call books. And then when you put them all together, they actually make up a book, so when I look at this, when I look at the Bible, I realize there are 66 separate ancient documents from different periods of time, written in different languages, translated into English, and you can start typically with any one of them. Most of them can be read independent of the other ones. So it is okay to read the book of Job before you read the book of Exodus. But what I'm saying is, if you read the book of Job, because you want to understand the book of Job, don't start in chapter 20 of the book of Job. Start with chapter 1 of the book of Job and read all the way through. The story's not going to make sense if you start at Job chapter 20. Okay, one other thing, just so I'm not legalistic on this. I'm not legalistic, but just in case you don't take it that way. I'm not saying that there's never, never a time where you're allowed to skip to the middle of something in order to like answer somebody's question. So I just want to be clear. I'm saying typically as you're trying to understand the Bible, read from beginning to end of a book. But I'm not saying that it's like a sin to flip to the middle of something to try to answer somebody's question, right? If somebody came up to me and said, what does the Bible say about divorce? I would turn to Matthew chapter 19 and I would tell them what Jesus said about divorce in Matthew chapter 19. I would not go to Matthew chapter 1 and teach them 18 chapters of stuff not about divorce just to get to the place where Jesus addressed divorce. Does that make sense? And so in that sense, it's just like a normal book. A normal book, what do you do? You read it from beginning to end, However, if someone walked up to you and said, hey, uh, what happens at the end of that book? You probably would not go, mm -mm -mm, we start at page one to answer that. No, you could skip to the end and tell them what happens at the end. And that's fine with the Bible as well. But in general, if we're going to read it in context, that means not just reading one sentence at a time, and it means reading it in order from the beginning of a book to the end of a book. Does this help so far? Yes. Okay, good. One person, two, two people. That's better. <laughs> Double than doubles first service. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't even know. Okay, so um, number two, author intent. So we've talked about context, now author intent. Um, this just means what did the author intend to say when he put the words in that order, okay? So there is some overlap here with the concept of context, but I think it's worth treating as a separate point. When you read your Bible, and I'll just, let's say you decide, I'm going to read it in the morning, and I'm going to read, you know, I don't know, whatever you decide, one chapter a day. Okay, so let's say you read your one chapter. 
and it's Monday morning, and you read your one chapter. After reading the chapter, the first question that you ask yourself should probably not be, how can I apply this to my life? When you read a chapter of the Bible, the first question you ask after you read it probably should not be, how can I apply this to my life? And you go, well, but isn't that a good question? Oh, it is. It is a good question. Actually, it's a very good question. And the people that ask that question, how can I apply this to my life, are people who are taking the authority of the Bible seriously. They're saying, I need to believe the stuff that it says I'm supposed to believe. I'm supposed to do the stuff that it commands. How does this apply to my life? It's a very good question. But what I'm saying is, it shouldn't be the first question you ask. The first question you ask is, what did the author mean when he wrote this? You understand first, then apply. Now, here's why that's important, because if you skip straight to apply without understanding what the author intended, you're, it, it, could, it could send you in a bunch of wrong directions a lot of the time. Uh, Proverbs 5, verse 18 is the example I want to use for this one. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. Okay, that's the Bible. We learned that not too long ago in the series on Proverbs. The Bible says, let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. The, um, the, the verse is written like an imperative, right? Like you are supposed to take pleasure in the wife of your youth. So if you don't factor in the author's intent and you just jump straight to, I need to do this, I need to take pleasure in the wife of my youth, do you see how that could be a problem? Let's imagine you are a single woman, okay? You're an unmarried woman. And now you're trying to figure out how to take pleasure in the wife of your youth. And you're, I mean, how do you apply that to your life? Does this single woman that's reading this verse need to go find a wife? No, right? What did the author intend when he wrote this? The author intended this to be read by a young married man. He expected a young married man to read this, and he was trying to communicate to that man to be faithful to his marriage vows, you understand that that's what the author intended, and then you apply it to your life. Okay, here's... Um, oh, this one's good. I want to teach you Philippians 4, verse 13 today. I know. <laughs> Buckle your church belts. All right? This verse, uh, um, of all of the verses in the Bible, I don't know if it's number one, but... It, it, but but it's probably in the top 10 list, uh, if you made a top 10 list of verses that people quote because, and, they, and they don't care about the context and they don't care what the author meant, okay? This is, it happens all the time. Philippians 4.13 says this, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Who's heard this verse before? Yeah, so everyone loves this verse. People love this verse. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. And people say it about themselves and people even say it about other people. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And people bring it up a lot in the context of sports, I have noticed, right? We, we can win the basketball game on Friday. How do you know we can win the basketball game on Friday? Because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Yes! And then they go, right? Now, is that what the verse is about? Well, let's go ahead and let's, let's read the words that are here that came before it and the words that are here that came after it. And let's just try to figure out what did the, the guy who wrote this, what did he mean at the time that he wrote it? Let's check it out. Philippians chapter 4. All right, starting in verse 10, this is kind of, I'm not going all the way to the beginning of the book of Philippians because I'm answering a particular question. Um, so I'm going to go to the beginning of the paragraph. Okay, Philippians 4 verse 10. I, this is Paul talking to the Philippians, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that, you, you, that once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little, and I know how to have a lot. 
And in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that has increased into your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Championship game's not even mentioned in there. It's crazy. Um, so, so if you're going to look at this and try to figure out, well, what was he talking about? In my opinion, verse 18 is the key to understanding this whole passage. Okay? Verse 18 is where he says, but I have received everything in full. When we can see that before Paul wrote these words, at some point before he wrote these words, the people that he wrote it to, the Philippians, sent him something that he has now received. Okay? It's called a gift, I believe, earlier in the passage. Okay? So there's some sort of care package that they sent to meet his need. Probably money, but if not money, maybe something valuable that he could use like, for, uh, as money. Okay? They sent him some kind of care package. They sent him some sort of money. They sent him some sort of gift. And he is saying, in response to them sending the gift to him, he's saying, hey, I just want to let you know I received it. The book of Philippians is a receipt. Isn't that interesting? Okay? It's a receipt. It is a guy received something, and he wrote a letter to the people he received it from and let them know, I got it. I want you to know I got it. Okay? I received it. I have an abundance. So, so it's apparently at some point, the Philippians wanted to care about him but didn't have the ability to do anything about it. And then one day they did. And they had this delivery guy, and they told the delivery guy, here's the stuff. Go find Paul and give him the stuff. And the delivery guy said, yeah, I'll do it. You know, and then he walked off, and maybe they wondered, well, I hope he finds him. I hope it works out. And then delivery man made it. How do we know? Because delivery man showed back up a few weeks later with this letter. I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied. I got it. Your, your, your delivery man, he got it to me. The guy's name is even in the verse, right? Having received from Epaphroditus what you provided. That's the guy's name. I got the stuff. So once you understand that that's what's going on here, you can go back to verse 10, and verse 10 makes a lot more sense now. Let's go back to verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that once again you renewed your care for me. What's he talking about? He's talking about the care package they sent. So this is not just a receipt. It's almost like a thank you letter, right? I rejoiced when I got the stuff you sent, right? I'm so glad you renewed your care for me. You started caring for me again. You were, in fact, concerned but, about me, but you lacked the opportunity to show it. There was a time where you wanted to send me stuff and you couldn't do it. But as soon as you could, you did. And I got it. And I'm so thankful, right? I rejoice. And then he turns it into a learning moment, verse 11. He says, I don't say this out of need, right? I'm, I'm glad you sent me the stuff, but I didn't need it. Like, I don't want you to think I was sitting here wasting away and I was so sad and my whole life was just terrible and, and, and for some reason your money is the one thing that makes me happy. No, 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 I, didn't, I don't say this out of need. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little and I know how to have a lot. Before your care package arrived, I had very little. Now it showed up, I am abundantly supplied. Thank you, right? But in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Oh. <laughs> he doesn't mean I'm able to do any physical feat 
by believing in Jesus, he means I am able to endure any situation and still be content because Jesus gives me the strength to do that. Jesus gives me the contentment to get through any situation. I can do all things. I can endure all circumstances because of Jesus. This verse is not about running a marathon. It is not about lifting 500 pounds. It is not about spiking a volleyball in somebody's face skillfully in the name of Jesus, all right? And the way that we were able to determine that was by considering the context and asking ourselves the question, what did the author mean when he wrote this? Why is this important, Mario? Thanks for giving us these tips, but why does this matter? Oh, this matters. You want to know why this is important? Because there's going to be a very disappointed 15-year-old somewhere in this nation this year, probably. He's at some Christian school somewhere. He tried out for the football team and got on. And there's a big game coming up, and his coach is going to say, you can do all things. We, we all, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And that 15-year-old boy is going to go out on the field, and he's going to get tackled, and he's going to get tackled, and he's going to get tackled, and they're going to lose that game by a bunch of points. And dejected, he is going to go back to the locker room that night thinking, God broke his promise to me. I was not strengthened to do all things in Christ. And depending on what has happened in that 15-year-old boy's life up till that point, depending on all the other situations that led to that point, that might be the, the, the final straw. And that kid may walk away from the faith temporarily or forever. And it's ironic because the very verse that he misunderstood in such a way that he thinks God broke his promise to him is actually the verse in the Bible that could have taught him how to be content whether he won the game or lost it. There are too many people walking away from the faith for dumb reasons. We have got to get this right. All right, genre. So context, author intent, genre. Genre is very powerful because the type of document something is, the type of words that something is, influences the way you interpret the words. And again, this is something you already know. It's something you, you do all the time. Um, I want you to imagine that you see a newspaper headline, and in the news section of the newspaper, you see the headline, and it says, uh, Cowboys shoot down eagles, okay? That's the headline. And you're probably going to assume that there are some cowboys that use like rifles or pistols or something to shoot down eagles, which is a big deal since it's an endangered species. And so that's why it made it into the, um, that's why I made it into the newspaper. But I want you to imagine you see these exact same words as the headline in the sports section of the paper, okay? You are immediately going to know, oh, not literal cowboys, shoot down is not literal, eagles is not literal, right? This is about two sports teams, somebody won, somebody lost. You will change what you understand the words to mean as soon as you understand the genre of literature that you're reading. That's the power of genre. So let me show it to you in the Bible. Okay, we'll start with, and we're going to do Proverbs. This is a fun, that's on my mind lately because of this year. So let's go ahead and go with Proverbs 22, verse 29. We learned this proverb back when we were in the Proverbs series. This is what it says. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand in the presence of kings. He will not stand in the presence of unknown men. That's Proverbs 22, 29. And when we learned this verse, I told you that I, I, I said that I do not believe that this is the case 100% of the time. 
I do not believe that 100% of the time, a man who is skilled in his work hangs out with a king, right? What did I say at the time? At the time, I told you that I believe that this is a proverbial statement, that the idea here is when someone is very skilled in a particular area, they will get promoted. They will rise up to positions of influence, That's what the verse means. It does not mean if you get really good at something, you are guaranteed to hang out with a king. The idea is your skill will cause you to be promoted to positions of influence. That's that's the principle of this proverb. That's what it means. Now, let's look at another verse, okay, from a different section of the Bible, different type of literature. John 3.16 says this, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And if you've been coming to church here for seven years or eight years or nine years or ten years, you can probably testify that I have never quoted a verse, this one, or a verse like this one, and said, this is often true, right? (laughs) Have you ever heard me go, now that right there, that is sometimes true. Not every case, but like a lot of times something like that happens, right? Is Is that how I've talked about it when I've ever taught on these kinds of verses? Not at all. Why? I think one of the big reasons why is genre. This is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, and he's speaking to Nicodemus on the topic of how to enter into the kingdom of God. And as he's talking to Nicodemus about how to enter the kingdom of God, he tells him he's got to believe in the one and only Son that was sent by God so he would not perish and have eternal life. This verse is always true. It applies to everybody. Why do you say that, Mario? I'm saying it because of the type of literature I found it in. It's Jesus speaking to someone about the kingdom of God. So you always take Jesus' words literally, no, no, when Jesus says something proverbially, I take it like a proverb. But when he tells people how to enter the kingdom of God, I assume he's telling people how to enter the kingdom of God, and that's what he means. This verse is always true. How do I know that? Genre. We, we always take the type of document we're looking at, or the type of words, and that influences how we understand them. Another one, and this one will be something that you will use regularly, I, I think, and I hope. Another huge genre kind of thing that you need to ask yourself when you're trying to interpret the Bible is, is the kind of thing that I'm reading right now descriptive or prescriptive, okay? Descriptive means, does it describe something? Am I reading a story in the Bible and the words that I'm reading, the collection of words, is the genre, is the kind of literature that it is, is it describing something that happened in the past? Or is it prescribing something. You know how like doctors do a prescription? Their prescription is not describing something, it's telling you what to do, right? Take this antibiotic and call me next week. So is this, in other words, what's the, the, what I'm telling you is when you read the passage, you ask yourself, what's the genre? Is this a narrative or is this a law? Is this a historical account telling us something that happened? Or is this a command telling me to do something? We've got to ask ourselves that question, or you're going to come across sections in the Bible that that are narratives, and you go, well, how do we do this? And you're going to try to do something just because someone else in the past did it, even if the Bible doesn't require it of you. And you may have the other thing go along where you come across the law or some command, and this is what Christians are supposed to do, and you're going to go, oh, I I think that's a story from like a long time ago. We've got to know the difference between narratives and like, you know, commands. There's a narrative in the Old Testament where a guy named Joshua is at war with these people, and God commands him to march around the city of Jericho seven times. And he marches around the city of Jericho seven times, and the walls fall down. And then he is granted success, like militarily, as he takes over this city. But if someone were to take that story, and then you come along, and you go, yeah, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm having a hard time at work. And they go, oh, you're having a hard time at work? 
well, why don't you just follow the Bible, right? Go down to your place of work and march around that place seven times and God will give you success. Oh, I'm having trouble in my marriage. Oh, well, then let's be biblical, right? Go on in there and march around your husband seven times. That'll fix it. Hmm, might not. Might make it worse. We need to be able to tell the difference between passages that tell us what to do and passages that tell us what someone else did do. And hopefully we'll get more into genre next week as we start talking about the Old Testament books. For now, let me go ahead and conclude. Um, and I just wanted to end with this. I hope it's encouraging to you. It has been encouraging to me as I've realized it in my own life. Um, what has been true for me, and I hope is true for you, I hope it will become more and more true for you over time, is as you read your Bible, and as you study your Bible, typically it gets easier and easier to understand. Because you understand a book of the Bible, and then you understand another one, and then you understand another one, and by the time you get to the fourth one, you're not starting all over again. You have the knowledge of the first three that you learned with you. I've noticed that when I've been preaching, that I'll, you know, if I preach the book of Galatians, and I preach the book of Hebrews, and I preach the book of Exodus, and I preach the book of Ecclesiastes, when I get to Ecclesiastes, I'm not starting over from scratch. I, I, there's all these books that I know really well in my mind, and that helps me walk into Ecclesiastes and understand things better. Um, so, and that'll happen, I think, with you. The more of the Bible you learn, the more it'll stack up, or to change the metaphor... Sometimes the, the verses and the chapters and the passages you've learned in the past will be like a lens that helps you like, better see the next passage. And so I want to show this to you in case you don't believe me. I want to show this to you how this could work as you're studying the Bible. And I'll just pick a particular topic and just run it through. So imagine you're a new, you're a new Christian. You don't know much about the Bible. And imagine you start with the book of Acts. And you're reading through the book of Acts. And imagine you come to Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 45. And you don't know a whole lot but you're reading through the book of Acts and you notice that it says this. It says, Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. And you start asking yourself, okay, what do I do with that? Okay, It's a narrative. In other words, it's telling me what some people did do. But what do I do with this account of what these people did do? It seems like the earliest Christians held all things in common, that there wasn't like his and hers and yours and mine, right? But there was just like, here's all our stuff. And they sold things as people had needs. And so, hey, if you got a need, you don't even need to worry about solving it. We'll get somebody else to sell it, and then they'll hand you their stuff. And it's not even their stuff. It's not your stuff. It's all our stuff. And I could imagine somebody might read this, and they might go, well, maybe God is into like some kind of Christian version of communism where there is no private property, and that's how God wants his people to act, and that's why there's this account that says that the people did it, right? And so let's go, let's say you're, let's say you're thinking, you're going, I don't know a lot about the Bible, so I'll just hold off, but, but maybe that's what it means. And then imagine the next book you read is the book of Exodus. And as you're reading through Exodus, imagine you come across this verse, Exodus 22, verse 1. When a man steals an ox or a sheep and butchers it or sells it, he must repay five cattle for the ox or four sheep for the sheep. Ooh, well, that sounds different. Like, that almost doesn't even seem to match Acts. Acts is like, you know, there's no yours and mine and ours, and then all of a sudden, here we are, and there's definitely a yours and mine. In fact, if someone takes something that's not theirs but is somebody else's, right, and, and has it in a position, in, a, in a, a form that they can't give it back to them, right, they've already butchered it or sold it, then what are they supposed to do? Well, it's obviously, it's, a, it's wrong. Stealing is wrong. For someone to, to go and take someone else's stuff, that's a... 
That's a sin, and they're supposed to make restitution for it. And so we look at how the people of Israel acted, and we go, that's interesting. They did not all sit around and go, these are all our sheep, right? This, all these oxen, we all share it. That's not how God's people did it. But then you look up here, and you go, well, then how does it work? And you might even think to yourself, well, this is Old Testament. This is new. Maybe God was like into private property, you know, and stuff like in the Old Testament. And then Jesus came and boom, now we all share everything. And maybe that was one of the differences when Jesus died on the cross. I don't know. And then imagine the next book of the Bible you learn is Ephesians. And imagine as you're reading through Ephesians, you come to Ephesians chapter 4 and you read this verse. The thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Now that is interesting because that verse matches Acts and Exodus. I'm looking at this and I'm going, this is New Testament, so the idea that there's no private property in New Testament, that, I can throw that idea out the window now. This thief is still a thing. Okay, so, so there is mine and yours and hers and his. And so this passage in Ephesians that says the thief must no longer steal, that fits very good with Exodus. But then it doesn't end there. It says he must do honest work with his own hands. Why? Why? So that he can have all this stuff? No. So that he has something to share with anyone in need, which is exactly what they were doing in Acts. And so by the time we get to Ephesians, we see, okay, so there is, there is both private property, his and hers and mine and yours, and I'm not supposed to steal it, and this understanding that Christians should not be so gripping on their stuff that they don't meet other people's needs. And by the time you get to the third book, you go, I think I have a clearer understanding of this. And so that's how I wanted to end, by encouraging you, especially if you're at the beginning of this journey, that each time you read a book of the Bible, you're not starting all the way over. Like you carry the truths that you learned and the other ones with you. And you will understand God's word more and more and more. Isn't the thought of that exciting? Let's pray. Thank you, God. I thank you for the woman that just said yes, and I thank you for everybody else that just said yes in their heart, and I thank you for what you're doing among us, and I pray you'd help us to be people who are like, wise, that we take advantage of the fact that we have revelation from you in our language. And I pray you'd help us to be people who are wise and that we would realize this book is special. I will not treat it like these other books as far as authority goes, but I pray you'd also help us to be wise and that we would go, I will stop treating this like some weird mystical magic eight ball and I will start understanding it the way I understand all the other words I come across. So I just pray that you'd help us. I pray that you'd give us wisdom. I pray you'd give us discernment and we thank you. We thank you for your revelation. We thank you that in your word we find out about Jesus and he died on the cross for our sins and rose again and that we can be right with you We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.